Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. Well, let's get this thing started. Welcome to this week's episode. We're here at the Canon with Alec Walker, co-founder and CEO at Delphin. Alec, how you doing this beautiful Friday morning? I'm good. I had a remarkably easy time through Houston traffic, so yeah. you know, that bodes well. It's a good omen for the day. No kidding. Where are you from? Like, which part of the town are you coming in from? I live in the museum district just okay. by Rice University. Very cool. So That's easy to area. get to downtown, you know, often sort of easy to get out here to the energy corridor. We're kind of on the way there right now. Yeah, no kidding. So I'm the complete opposite. I'm like most people in Houston. I live in the Burbs out in Katy. So coming in, especially when school starts, summertime is great. Holidays are great. Yeah. But it's like, you know, that one day that everyone, you know, is back in school. It's just like quadruples the time to get in here. But this morning, Fridays are nice because a lot of people work that 980. So yeah, I was going to give myself an hour, but it ended up only taking me like 40 minutes. So, you know, it's, you're always crossing your fingers if you got an early morning meeting, because you know, any fender bender or anything like that can just tack on some serious time. So it's always a gamble, but fortunately we're here. The weather's great. I don't know about you, but this 70 some degree weather this morning, it feels like, you know, just amazing after, <laughs> after the heat waves we've been having here, you know, it's like October yeah. and we're still getting nineties. It's insane. Yeah. It's a good point. It always takes me till about 9 AM before I start to be able to register things like the weather. But uh, <laughs> yeah. I trust you on that. And I've noticed I'm not <laughs> pouring sweat as I come in this morning. So yeah. Right. So you're not much of a morning person then or what? You know, I've had to become more and more of a morning person. When I used to work for Shell, I of course would get up early. And especially when I was in Colorado, the thing seemed to be start work at like seven or start mm -hmm. work at six and then you, you can be out by three or four. Yeah. I and mean, people want to go, you know, jog in the mountains or do things like that. So I kind of got into that. Very cool. But you know, through business school and through the the consulting stuff after that, I kind of got back into my more natural pace of staying up late working on projects and then sleeping till, you know, nine or eight thirty or so. But yeah. Yeah. In the last year back to oil and gas, back to waking up early. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned, you know, kind of staying up later and, and I've read quite a bit into circadian rhythms and how people naturally gravitate, you know, cause everyone has a different circadian rhythm. So some people actually perform better cognitively in the evenings, mm. you know, and a lot of, you know, artists and people that are, are mass creators tend to do it from like the wee hours of 11 and at night till three or four in the morning. An author that I really admire is Tim Ferriss. And, you know, he talks a lot about that but you know to eventually i hope in you know in the future that companies and, and i think we're already starting to see it but just companies allowing people to really embrace you know respecting people's times and when they perform because like to force you know every human being for the most part to you know from nine to five totally generally speaking to me is is it's so archaic um yeah. and so if people would just you know, identify that, oh, wow, you know, okay, this person performs well in the morning. Like for me, I'm in a morning person. I'm most productive from probably 7.30 in the morning till about one in the afternoon. And then the afternoon for me, I can tell the brain sort of starts to slow down a little bit. I've been able to hack that, fortunately, so I can, you know, sustain, a, you know, a good level of performance throughout the day. But interesting, you kind of mentioned that now you're kind of being forced back into, you know, the corporate time frame of things. So hopefully <laughs> well, you're adjusting. I'm being stretched at both ends now. Oh, There's boy. plenty of late nights too. Yeah. When I first started college, I was majoring in creativity, like learning what is creativity kind of academically. Very um, cool. And how does it work and that sort of thing. And this was a while ago. 
ago and I switched into chemical engineering when I transferred into Rice University. But one of the things I remember about that is that people tend to be more creative when it's easier for them to lose their sense of time mm. and their sense of deadline. So often late Very night, interesting. You know, it's just like the night will stretch on until you're too tired and you go to sleep. And then your inhibitions kind of go down and you start to be a little bit more creative. So I wonder if that has something to do with it there. Wow. That's an interesting, I never heard that perspective, but I certainly can, I would agree with that hundred percent. Cause yeah, when you're in the zone, you know, sort of speak when you're in that flow state of flow, a lot of times you totally lose sense of time. So you could be doing something that, you know, you kind of think about it and it's like, oh, that, you know, that 20 minutes, but it was literally two hours later. So, you know, I can jump on board with that thought for sure. <laughs> nice. um, before we keep going, I just want to mention everybody out there, this episode is actually fueled by Perfect Keto. So whether you're on a keto diet or simply just looking for healthy snack alternatives or even a resource for healthy eating and information on health and nutrition, it's called perfectketo.com. Check it out. I have no affiliation with them, but they're a, a group of guys and Dr. Andy Gustin out of Austin does a great job of just putting out solid information. So uh, take a look at that. And, you know, if you really want to support the show, I would really appreciate it if you could subscribe and do me a huge favor and just leave a review, whether it's on LinkedIn or iTunes. I mean, obviously, whatever platform you're listening to, if you could leave a review on that, that's the best way to increase the viewership. But I've had a lot of folks hit me up on LinkedIn, which I really appreciate, even just saying, hey, thanks for connecting, like the podcast. I've had a lot of people reach out and just give me great advice or, you know, even ideas for a show or even just making connections to people. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to meet with. So for anyone out there who's hit me up on LinkedIn, I really appreciate it. I try to respond as quick as I can, but, you know, we're all busy, so it doesn't always happen as fast as I'd like. But either way, I certainly appreciate all the support as of recently. So Alec, you know, let's, so this has been a quick turnaround. You hit me up or maybe I hit you up, I've, you know, forgive me for that. But, you know, we talked yesterday on the phone and all of a sudden we're sitting here behind the microphone. So I wanted to ask, like, and you even mentioned it, you've been kind of behind microphones and talking on, have you been on a podcast before? Yeah. yeah. Um, I was on Susan Nash's Life Edge recently. She's with the American Association of Petroleum Geologists. Okay. And it was fun. You know, honestly, I kind of like this stuff. It's really fun for me to be able to represent this tool. Yeah. So I'm really enjoying this. And, you know, thanks for, for making time. I think it was Chioma at Baker. That's right. Who made the connection for us. So yeah. thanks, Chioma. She's such a sweetheart. Yeah. yeah. I saw her this week at Oilcom. And it's like every event that I go to, we, we suddenly, you know, knock into each other. And she's always just got such a great attitude. I know right now she's working in the field and she's trying to get into Houston. So, you know, shout out to Shioma. She's such a great person and just a wonderful lady. And so if for the podcast that you'd been on, maybe you can send me the link to it and we could put it in the show notes. That oh, way sure. if people are interested yeah. to, you know, if they enjoy this one, they can listen to the other one too. That's generous of you. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Do you listen to podcasts? I do. I tend to listen to a lot of stand-up comedy, if that counts. Ah, very um, That's cool. always been sort of a secret dream of mine. Um, okay. Is to somehow be funny that way. Um, nice. And it calms me down. You know, people uh, working hard on coming up with good jokes and how they deliver them. I think that's a great art form. And if I'm stressed, then I'll listen to some of that. But more recently, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts having to do with machine learning or AI. Or, mm, I bet there's a lot that's of just good studying ones. up, you know, for us. Yeah. 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 No kidding. Which we're going to dive into. So, but, you know, so it's funny with comedy, the most recent, and I've been a Dave Chappelle fan, you know, for a long time, but his most recent one hits a lot of, depending on the sense of humor of people, he hits on all the third rails. And so, you know, when you mentioned stand-up comedy, that one stood out to me. It, it was, it had me howling, but I don't know, I may be going to hell for laughing at some of the jokes he had. But it's funny how comedians, they can, 
it's like they can talk the truth. It, they can talk about things that everyone's thinking about, but can't say, you know, because of whatever. But comedy is such a, it's a good medicine. And so I can identify with you there. So, you know, let's kind of get dive into this here. So tell me a little bit about your background, where you're from and sort of how you led up to, you know, us sitting behind the mics here today. Sure. Thanks. Well, I'm from Houston and I schooled here all the way until sophomore year of high school. And then I went to a boarding school in Connecticut, started college on the East Coast at Hampshire College, which is okay. referenced uh, studying creativity, took an engineering course and kind of fell in love with it. And so switched back to Rice here in Houston and did chemical engineering, hmm. wound up working for Shell for three and a half years after that. And I moved around a lot inside of Shell. I started off in downstream in chemical catalysis and kind of R&D. What is that? So when you have chemical reactors, either in an oil refinery or in some other kind of chemical plant, often they're filled with catalysts. And catalysts take part in the chemical reaction, but emerge chemically unchanged from how they were going in. Mm. So they just kind of help to align particles so that they're in the right orientation to combine and it lowers the activation energy. Uh, Sometimes okay. it's about expediting separation as well as combination, but. Interesting. So they're, they're pretty nifty and you can fill these reactors. They're kind of like breakfast cereal, you know, the catalyst when you lump them all together and that encourages a certain type of flow inside of the reactor. So we were trying to design better catalysts, which was, you know, fun under new, more stringent, environmental stipulations at the time. Mm. And then I switched into tech service engineering. So I was consultant outwardly facing from Shell, helping other oil refineries decide what catalyst to use and how to optimize their reactions and that sort of thing. I then moved into software product management, which is kind of a weird switch inside of Shell. Yeah, And we brought in a group that helped us to build a tech tool that wound up being implemented for the whole global pool of tech service engineers in Shell projects and technology. And the tool that we brought in, the people who build it are now my co-founders. Oh, nice. So, you know, they were a third party thing. They, they weren't with Shell. Shell outsourced this work. And it was tough because they had to do, basically they had to implement a tool that would survive scrutiny across multiple PNL mm. groups inside of the mothership and, you know, satisfy a lot of very disparate needs of different kinds of senior engineers. Hmm. So they did a really good job. It made me look good. So, you know, that was awesome. <laughs> For sure. Then after that, I was a reservoir engineer in, so that's upstream. And that was when I was in Denver. Okay. I left Shell to go to business school. I was at Stanford and focused on digital transformation and on corporate innovation. So kind of circling back on that creativity stuff from Hampshire, mm. spent a lot of time at Stanford's D school, which is something of an entrepreneurial hub but also just generally how do you, in a business setting typically, how do you achieve innovation using creativity and what does that have to do with the people factor? Right. Then I did some consulting for multinationals in that area, mostly digital transformation or new product or service generation inside of in companies. So intrapreneurship and then reconnected with my now co-founders and started Delphin. No kidding. So before we get into Delphin, because I know there's a lot of talk about there, but did you always know that you were going to go to a lot of the, I mean, you have a pretty good resume with regards to what schools you went to. I mean, were you always interested in going to these schools specifically or like, how did you end up just deciding to go, you know, to Stanford and to do, you know, in Rice and then didn't you study abroad as well? I did. Yeah. How did I decide on Rice? I think that I've been, I've been very 
fortunate to have parents who kind of support my passions Very cool. rather than parents who, you know, are worried about the practicalities of what I'm going to do with them. Mm-hmm. And there's some amount of that pressure. I have to be realistic. It was like, if I was interested in something as a kid, my parents would say, okay, go indulge in that. And then they would kind of expect results and like, <laughs> right. what's next? And, you know, from aunts and uncles, I, I would hear things like, it doesn't matter what you choose, but your goal is to be world-class in what you do choose. Nice. So, I like know, that advice. There's a little bit of pressure there, but it's more, it's more up to me. So I kind of floundered around and explored things based on what I was interested in. And that's, that's what led me to engineering. I think that I, I kind of fell in love with the challenge of it. Mm-hmm. I honestly wasn't very good at it. It okay. was really hard. I had to work really, really hard at Rice. And okay. I was proud of that and wound up doing you know decently well there. And Good for you. Uh, I didn't know about, there wasn't some master plan to try to go to business school. Sure. That emerged from what I discovered while I was at Shell. Okay. Well, so were you always quite, I mean, you're obviously studious enough to do well. Were, in high school, were you very studious and enjoyed you know, <laughs> math and science and stuff? Yeah. You know, high school, when I started off in Houston, I was at Lamar and I had a ton of fun. It yeah. was fantastic for me. Just socially, it was kind of revolution. I'd always been kind of a studious, you know, kind of bookwormish kind of guy. But yeah, I loved my time at Lamar. I got into music and made a lot of very diverse friends with really different perspectives on life. And cool. I got into punk rock and was playing lots of drums. And when I got to boarding school, I found the culture to be more homogenous. Mm. And I rebelled against that by leaning in harder to the punk rock. Good so I had you. a lot to prove. Yeah. You know, I wanted to get straight A's and still have a mohawk. You know, Hell yeah. And there's it's a little weird. And I, I think, you know, weirdness has been a theme in my life so far. <laughs> good uh, for you. Yeah. But for whatever reason, you know, that I guess was a good thing. And I did focus pretty hard on academics in high school. Right. Well, I have a question with regards to academics. And and right now I'm sure you're probably familiar. Like entrepreneurship is becoming, you know, to me kind of trendy and it's the cool thing to do. And you have folks out there, you know, quote unquote influencers that are saying, you know, education isn't as important as hustle and grind. And I mean, do you have any perspective or thoughts on, you know, the importance, like, let's say someone's listening to this, that's contemplating going back to school, but they also have an offer, you know, with a job to go make good money. Now, obviously everyone's goals are different. Everyone values, you know, things differently, but you know, with the education system, like, was that something that you found benefited you and added value to your career? Or do you think you could have, have done what you're doing, you know, and focus more on, you know, the you know, getting the real life experience rather than going to school? Does that make sense? It does. I have a lot of thoughts about that. I think that traditional formal education gives you discipline. It gives you acculturation mm-hmm. and it gives you a sense of, and this typically does conflict with real world problem solving, but a sense of box checking, you got the project done and it is now completely finished and there's a grade. Mm -hmm. And that third part, like I said, is pretty different from how the real world works often. But I've noticed that people who have made it outside of, you know, traditional education, often what they've had to struggle with is how do you retain that discipline in any sort of project you begin? And how do you define the scope of that project? And how do you know what boxes to check to feel like you accomplished it? Okay. And so that, that sort of discipline that comes from that sort of box checking in school, I think can be a useful tool. 
it's not always that way. And, you know, sometimes people emerge from school and it's kind of the opposite mm -hmm. because they're faced with real world challenges that just don't work that well. And there's no one to say, Hey, good job. You get an A. Right. It's more like, you know, up to you, how hard are you going to work and what are you going to focus on? And yeah. yeah, so it's changing. I think I've seen a big emergence in hacker spaces and maker spaces and people who are more self-taught yeah. And especially with a, such a huge rise in computer science and computer science related work, it's more easy to tell whether somebody has the chops and skills to add value out of the gate mm. who are self-taught than I think it ever has been in the past. So you kind of need the proxy of a fancy school name less than you used to, and at least in that domain. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting perspective. And I can tend to agree with you there. I, I've got a little bit of formal education up in Canada going and doing my petroleum engineering technology. And, you know, for me, as funny as it sounds, it taught me how to use Excel better than most people that I work around in the mud space and, you know, just in my oh, little yeah. bubble. But, you know, in for that reason, it's helped me add value to me in what I do. So, I mean, it's minor, but for me, it was important, but it was only two years and, you know, it was near, not near the amount of money that it cost to go to school down here. But yeah, it, it's an interesting topic. I hear a lot of people talking about it. And so I just figured I'd get your take on that. So, you know, we mentioned Delphin. I would like to dive into that. Tell us about Delphin, you know, what it is, how it adds value to the marketplace and, and just kind of the journey that you've gone with that. Sure. So Delphin is a natural language processing oriented data science company. Okay. And what we do is we help oil and gas companies to find the knowledge and the data that's buried inside of their own digital unstructured textual files. So we mm. call those DUT files. So digital, it's already on the computer. Unstructured and textual means that a human wrote it typically yep. in natural language. A human wrote it so that other humans could read it and reference it, whether it's an email or a report or a manual or a compliance document or something like that. Mm -hmm. And what tends to happen, in fact, the big stat is 80% of time in oil and gas is spent looking for information that's already contained in the company's files. Sure. So we'd like to think, you know, imagine if say ExxonMobil was a single person, that person would, and somehow they have a perfect memory, they would know so much, they'd be able to connect so many dots and they would have such optimal solutions to any issue or problem that comes up, right? Mm -hmm. But instead, and I don't, I'm not trying to pick on Exxon, it's just the first company that came to mind. Instead, what happens with oil and gas companies is that any individual is only able to make a fully informed decision if they do a ton of research. In the current environment more and more so that's just not competitive anymore you have to go faster than that you need to be able to make quick decisions that are also fully informed right yeah yeah so that's that's what we've been working on how we got going i mentioned the story about shell and connecting with my co-founders back then these guys astron international for 20 some years have been designing turnkey software packages tech tools for oil and gas companies so that's what their company does. And different from a normal consulting model, it's not about man hours. It's about here's the tool. It now works for you. You know, we can wipe our hands of it and you guys can just take it from there. It'll work from now on. Hmm. Of course, there's some, some amount of updates and service still required, but that model has worked very well for them over the years. So they really understand how to 
engage with these oil and gas companies and how to structure deals and make sure that, that they're actually solving real problems for repeat business. Hmm. And enough of their clients had come to them independently saying, yikes, all our subject matter experts are retiring. And the new guys, the new crew, you know, my age or, or younger, just don't have the expertise. They're plenty smart. They're demanding, you know, new age tech tools. Mm-hmm. They're frustrated with the lack of data transparency in the company, but they just can't get work done either as efficiently or if they try to be more efficient than as thoroughly as their predecessors who are retiring. What can you do about that? So Astron thought, okay, rather than a single solution, one by one for each company, the way they've done it in the past, can we build a single tool that can solve this problem more holistically for the entire industry? So they started incubating a project called Delphin, which has now proven itself enough to be spun out as its own company. So I got together with them around that time and we spun it out together. And now we're working with companies in the industry. No kidding. So you've had quite a bit. So how long ago was that? We incorporated in November, 2018. Okay. So relatively new. Yeah. And the tool has been under construction for conservatively, I'd say three and a half years. Interesting. Interesting. So you've got quite a bit of traction, you know, since kicking this thing off. I mean, are a lot of people seeing the value and approaching you? Or are you still beating the streets, you know, trying to present case studies and, you know, you know it's a, it's figure a, out how to get, you know, yeah. to the mass market? Yeah. There was a lot of that right at first, in spite of companies coming to us wanting solutions. There's a lot of incredulity that a tool can do what we say it can. It works, you know, you can ask a question and it'll look through the unstructured files, the DUT files hmm. that it has access to and come back with answers from across those files. And wow. people are skeptical about, well, is it really going to understand my domain? Is it going to understand how my team asks questions? And so we have to overcome that skepticism. It also will take in spreadsheet or a database that's partially filled or pretty much empty and fill it out for you automatically with data that's scattered across those DUT files. And then people are, again, kind of skeptical. Can it really do that? And if I click on an individual piece of data somewhere in that spreadsheet or that database and it shows me where it got it from, am I going to like where it came from? And how do I know that this thing is really representing the data well, as compared to if I did that exhaustive research myself. Okay. So that's been kind of the hurdle is proving the validity of, of the tool. Right. And really, whenever we have a chance, we've done very well. The hard part, and you know, you're asking about traction, I think the hard part in this industry is getting attention from people who are feeling the problem, who tend to be somewhat insulated, and the people who are outwardly facing in this industry sometimes do not understand the actual problems that are being faced by the core business teams and business units inside the company. Sure. No, that's crazy. I mean, it's hard for me to even wrap my head around how it would, that would even be possible. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners out there are curious, you know, from a fundamental standpoint, how does that actually work? And I mean, obviously this is proprietary for you guys, but without getting into, you know, granular how does that work? I mean, are you able to explain like how a tool or like, you know, a computer or software can like take things and organize them and deliver them? Like, is there an easy way to explain that? Yeah. I think that the fact that we're in natural language processing gives me some, there's a certain paradigm here that that's easier to explain than I think in a lot of other parts of data science or computer science. And that is, there's a rule of thumb that 
the more specifically applicable a tool, the more powerful it can be. Okay. And the more generally applicable a tool, the less powerful than it has to be. And that's definitely true for natural language processing. So if you build a tool for the entire oil and gas industry, and then some, you know, a tool that's oil and gas and law and medicine all at the same time, the natural language processing capacity is going to be the lowest common denominator that survives all of the the needs across all of those different domains. Mm-hmm. So somebody asks a law question, somebody else asks an oil and gas question. If the tool is designed to handle both, then it's leaving something behind. Mm. You know, a good example that our chief scientist used to kind of help me get it when I was first starting with this is the letter AS in the English language as is also the chemical symbol for arsenic. Mm-hmm. So if somebody asks a question and it contains the chemical symbol arsenic and you're designing algorithms that are going to be able to consider that possibility and rate that possibility versus other possibilities when it's deciding the intent of the question and then look for connections that have to do with the English letter as, for example, as we can see, comma, blah, 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 versus arsenic, they want something related to chemistry. Yeah. The lawyer wouldn't want that distinction, you know? It's very unlikely that in the legal domain or maybe finance domain, AS would actually stand for arsenic. Right. So you just cut out, you sever that branch of the NLP, Hmm. right? Because it's not, the chances that it produces any valuable fruit are so small, you just sever it completely. That's what I mean by lowest common denominator. So you got to build something that understands your industry. And then Hmm. you have to build something that understands the specific company and the specific team. And so we've built something that on the foundational level, it's industry-wide. We've done bookends here. We've done something very far upstream in exploration geology. We've done something very far downstream in chemical plant optimization and maintenance. Mm -hmm. So we feel like, okay, we can handle the industry here, but where we really need to spend our time and what, what we've gotten very good at in the last year through these implementations is how do we very, very quickly tune our models to fit with the individual team within that individual company. And a lot of that is now automated. And that's really the secret sauce. Ah, okay. Because I was going to tie into my next question is kind of how you differentiate yourselves in the marketplace. Because I would imagine, you know, as unique as this sounds to me, there may be other folks out there trying to capitalize on this, you know, demand. So how do you guys navigate those waters? Yeah. So there's, I call it the Goldilocks problem. I was talking about trying to make a tool that is too broad, you know, that covers all the industry. Mm -hmm. Like in the old Goldilocks story, that's like the Papa Bear, you know, it's just too, the soup is too hot or too big or the chair is too big or whatever. Um, You kind of can't add value anywhere if you're trying to solve everybody's unique problem at the same time. Yeah. And then there's the baby bear problem, which is you can zoom in on a very specific application within oil and gas, but then you've cut the size of your market way down. Mm. And the, each application of this tool then has to be very expensive in order to keep your company's lights on and, you know, make sure you can hire top talent and that sort of thing. So you're really, you need the mama bear approach, which is our approach. You have to make something that is the potential to be industry-wide, but can focus in and be flexible for each use case when it needs to be. The other dimension that I think has helped to separate us from a lot of companies that have emerged recently in this space is if you have a tool that is that is very focused on open sourced algorithms and buzzwords about 
natural language processing related technology, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning and anything that you find that might be useful, you try to work on. What can happen is you think of it kind of like a tree with a ton of branches. One of those branches is solving a problem for your client. Mm -hmm. And if you really listened to your client and understood where they're facing challenges, they would want to focus in on one of those branches. But a lot of companies are focusing on all those branches all at the same time. You know, any buzzword that's related to this, let's incorporate that into our tool and our solution. And that actually lowers the probability that the client likes the tool and wants to reuse the tool. Mm. If you follow that branch back down to the trunk of the tree, it looks obvious in retrospect, but for any startup just now blossoming, it's kind of hard to know which branch to focus on. And the tendency is to focus on all of them. Mm -hmm. So I think we're pretty fortunate to have had these longstanding relationships with clients and it helps us get into oil majors a little bit more easily. And, you know, we can understand where they're coming from and then focus the solution on those problems, addressing those problems. The downside of our strategy there is just from the outside of the industry looking in, like mm -hmm. say you're a new mom and pop, you know, angel investor or a VC firm or something, which tool looks sexier? The one that is, you know, yelling and, and screaming about all these various technologies that are all being incorporated in this grand big picture, or the one that is just like kind of has their head down in the work and is just getting it done. Probably the first one, but which one might be the better company to actually invest in might be the, the second one. Sure. So it's not that we don't have a roadmap and a plan for how we're going to expand. We do. It's just a little bit more practical and tied directly to the needs of the clients. Okay. So would you say you're, you guys are really focused on more so playing the long game and not so much looking for that instant gratification, but really building a solid foundation and then slowly building on that? Or Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay, I moved back here from Silicon Valley where the market in VC, that the standard process tends to be very fast. Mm -hmm. And why can it go so fast? It's because the clients can go fast. Right. If you're dealing with end use consumers, you know, if it's a B2C kind of business, there's so many consumers and you can grow really quickly if you have the right funding. So you raise capital as fast as you can and maybe your product is shoddy, but who cares? You just raise more capital. And then once you have money, you can hire people to fill in the gaps. And yeah. if you get enough marketing out there, then everyone will start using you. My sense of oil and gas, and you know, we've been fortunate to attract a lot of mentors who've been around this space for a while. So my sense isn't just from my own personal experience here. My sense of oil and gas is that if you're in it for the long haul and you're more focused on understanding the, the real problems of your clients and you do what it takes to get in with the majors, then you're more likely to succeed overall. And there's a very serious threat that if you raise a lot of capital quickly and don't have the right ends with the oil companies and can't actually deliver what they want, then your burn rate gets really high because you have a lot of people and you're spending that money and you can just kind of fizzle right out. Mm -hmm. So we're at an interesting transition right now in oil and gas because of all the focus on digital transformation. And that's mm -hmm. something I can talk about for a while if it's interesting for this podcast, it what's is. changing right now. And so we can get into that next. So, you know, this is starting to change somewhat and there is perhaps a possibility to move faster in oil and gas as a third-party software provider than has been traditionally possible. And yet, you know, oil and gas is still oil and gas. And 
there are a lot of reasons why things are more careful. Steps that the industry takes are, are more careful and there's a lot more diligence and prudence up front than just diving into things and throwing money around to see see what sticks. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I know a lot of listeners, you know, are probably interested in the digital transformation type of thing. So, you know, from your perspective, what are you seeing and what's kind of fascinating and, you know, what's kind of breaking down walls right now that you're involved with or that just that you've been, that you've seen? Well, oil and gas is focused on three things. There's how do we increase our production? Mm-hmm. There's how do we improve our safety and there's how do we cut our costs. Yep. And different parts of oil and gas have more of an emphasis on, on different of those of those three things. You know, exploration geology, for example, there's less that can less of a, a risk of, of human injury, for example. Or maybe you're in an office job and there's less of a risk there than if you're in a plant. Mm-hmm. But it's you know, it's still an important factor. So all of these three things matter in all parts of the industry. There's just different emphasis in, in different areas. But what's changing, what's happening now, traditionally, I found oil and gas is either in a boom mode or in a bust mode. Yeah, if yeah. it's in a boom mode, then like things are pretty good. And, you know, the companies that, that are leaders will always be focusing on operational efficiencies. But there's maybe less of a sense that like, wow, this whole thing could erode underneath us if we don't get this operational efficiency thing going. Yeah. And then in bust mode, typically what happens is a bunch of people get laid off. So you really cut your costs. In neither of those two traditional modes are you really focused for your long-term strategy, you know, your most important core to business strategy on how do we make strategic investments in outside things, things that cost us money up front, but create efficiencies and increase production. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more that you see that more in other industries where the, the competition is just always more brutal rather than boom and bust mode. But right now what's happened is we're in this break-even pricing environment, mm-hmm. which seems pretty sustained and will, will be sustained. So what happens there, especially with when combined with these retiring subject matter experts is, gosh, we really need better efficiency. We're having some of our ability to get that efficiency accomplished and the status quo eroding because of retiring subject matter experts. And we need it more than ever. So there's this big kind of kick in the pants here, and that's what leads to digital transformation because the lowest hanging fruit consensus seems to be is on the data management side. Digital transformation is about data management. Right. It's about what do you do with your digital files and your data. So we've seen private equity on the rise. Private equity is famous, notorious, depending on how you look at it, for efficiency at all costs. So there's a lot of push, even with the smaller companies now, mm-hmm. towards this kind of operational efficiency. The larger companies can, you know, one merger creates a huge, between two big companies can create a huge amount of efficiency just because of scale. Right. A smaller company to really stay in the game now in this time of herd thinning has to focus much more on what can they do to improve their efficiency and get a lot more out of their people, you know, than ever before. So one more problem that I think is accelerating all of this, maybe I should call it a challenge, is just the acceleration of data generation. Mm-hmm. So already data is you know, accelerating at a giant rate across the world and oil and gas because of the IoT revolution. Now everything has a sensor. Yep. You know, there's a bunch more data that's tabulated kind of structured data. And what 
then happens is there's a gigantic ballooning effect on top of every bit of tabulated data in the form of unstructured textual data, which is 90% of all the data that percentage is growing. So what happens is whenever you get a spreadsheet automatically generated from sensors filled with data, you create a model, you create a report, you send an email, you prove to your boss that you've looked and looked at and analyzed all of that data and taken it into consideration as you make your decision. All of that that you've generated is now unstructured textual information that will be useful the next time you or someone like you has to make a similar decision. Right. So that challenge, how do you address all of that? How do you ensure there's best practices in there, I think is only growing. So the market timing for us is pretty good here. Yeah, that's crazy. How important do you think it is? Because obviously, you know, we've been drilling and, and, you know, producing wells for eons now. And a lot of that old data is on, you know, paper, and it is not digitalized. Do you think in order for us to kind of revolutionize, is it important to unlock a lot of that historical data? Or do you feel that a lot of the data that we have that's been digitalized is enough to take us to the next level? So a lot of that is industry dependent. I would say generally, it always helps to be able to reference what's happened in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, it's why we learn history in school. And, you know, there's just, there's a lot to be said for looking at, is there anything approaching a precedent to this problem? And how was that dealt with? And Typical best practices in problem solving start with that if that's possible. Sure. In oil and gas, that is more the norm and more necessary than than in a lot of industries, both because it's a process-driven industry. So, you know, you're looking at something that there is a process for it. Mm-hmm. There are best practices, there are precedents for issues and how they were resolved as well as because the consequences of failure in oil and gas can be much more catastrophic than in a lot of industries. Sure. So I do a lot of comparisons just because of my background between oil and gas and the industry of software. So if you're in like a big, you know, tech, I don't like to use that word just to refer to software, but it's just kind of the buzzword, you know, tech company means, means somehow big software company. There isn't actually a lot of unstructured textual documentation because as soon as you have an idea, you just try it. And if it fails, well, okay, the algorithm was slower than we wanted, or maybe a server goes down for a bit or something in a worst case scenario. In oil and gas, something can explode. The environment can be hurt. People can be hurt, you know? So you have a lot more very understandably consensus-driven prudent decision-making where you're looking at a lot of things to make sure you know what you're talking about and what makes sense before you take the next step. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more of a need for this in oil and gas already. Interesting. So what's your crystal ball look like with regards to where we'll be with digitalization and, you know, tech related things in the oil and gas space within the next, say, five to 10 years? I mean, do you have any idea? I do. I'm going to give two scenarios. The ideal scenario is oil and gas companies have a cultural adjustment that makes them more attractive to a new workforce that expects transparency in their data, expects more of a flat influence system inside of the company Mm. as opposed to a top-down and hierarchical one. So they attract the right talent based on the the cultural expectations and requirements of the next generation of workers. So they attract that talent and then they don't focus on cutting people out. They keep the people, but each person adds a lot more value 
because people are able to spend a lot less of their time looking for information and a lot more of their time using that information to optimize things or explore new areas. Hmm. So that's what I think will happen. Well, that's what I hope will happen. That's kind of the ideal scenario. I think what will actually happen is perhaps not quite as rosy, but I think what the companies that survive this herd thinning and that grow and sort of win in the industry are going to be the companies that do what I just said. Yeah. And unfortunately, there are, going to be, there are going to be many companies that are swallowed up in acquisitions or else just kind of go belly up because they can't get their act together on this digital transformation stuff. Yeah, no, it's interesting perspective. We're coming up close to about 40 minutes here. So I got a couple more questions now towards the end. They're a little more on the personal side, but you know, do you have any daily habits or routines that kind of help keep you focused? Obviously, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, as a startup, it's very stimulating, a lot of energy gets put into it, but is there anything kind of outside that helps you disconnect and kind of keep you motivated and, and energized from a mental capacity? My family is really good at that. Okay. Yeah. I spent a lot of time with my parents who live here in Houston. Very cool. They're both still working on things they're passionate about, but they're more or less retired otherwise. Good for them. And they're always like, oh, calm down. You know, like everyone has a a friend you turn to who's kind of like the one who wants to drag you out to the bar and stay up a little too late. And, you know, and you always feel like, oh, I'm so glad I did that. I feel so much more myself. My parents are like that for me, you know? Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. You know, I can trust their judgment and their advice, of course, but they're also kind of like, maybe you need to have a little fun and maybe you should (laughs) just put that down and go on a run and think it over. And so I I think that really helps me. Of course, exercise is a really big deal. Unfortunately, it's often something that I sacrifice right away when I just have too much work. Mm -hmm. But whenever I don't, I find that I'm more productive afterwards. So which would you rather have more time at a lower efficiency rate or slightly less time at a much higher efficiency rate? Yeah. So that's something I'm still working on and tends to go pretty well whenever I, you know, go on a run in the morning or go to the gym or join some class or yeah. my girlfriend will drag me out and make me do a bunch of squats or, you know, <laughs> nice. she's into that like high intensity stuff. This is right up your alley, right? This is stuff you know a lot about. Yeah, no, I'm familiar with it for sure. No, that's interesting. And a lot of people do sacrifice, you know, it's a kind of a low hanging fruit. It's like, oh, I'm busy. And, you know, where can I add an hour? It's like, oh, I'm not going to go to the gym. But, you know, it it sounds like you're at least you have the awareness of of how you feel, whether you do or don't. So uh, sleeps the same way, right? Yeah. Oh, 100 percent. I over the last probably five years, I really put an emphasis on not only the amount of sleep, but just the quality of sleep, you know, leading up to a couple hours before, you know, going to bed, really kind of making a great sleeping environment, which kind of sounds silly and woo-woo maybe a little bit, but I tend to track my sleep and my HRV and pulse, you know, heart rate and stuff like that. And through a lot of the little things that I've been able to address, it's actually helped improve my quality of sleep. So now I've realized I don't necessarily need the amount of hours, but if I can improve the quality of my sleep, it's just as effective as if I get, you know, crappy sleep, but maybe for seven and a half or eight hours. So yeah, just, you know, as we mature and and sort of understand ourselves a little better, it's interesting to make those connections. So anyway, one last question I had is what's something, and you kind of already mentioned it about the comedy thing, but maybe there's something else. Is there anything out there that not many people know about sort of maybe any good hidden secrets or any unique hobbies that you do outside of, you know, the daily hustle? Music. Cool. I do a lot of music stuff. I make mashups of other people's work and okay. I create a lot of my own music. 
the best way to do music is with other people. Yeah. And there's something you can get from, I got this, this from my brother, who's a professional musician and hmm. was a jazz musician in New York and just crushed it. You know, no still, still tours the, the world. And uh, his name music. is? Nicholas Walker. Nicholas Walker. Uh, yeah, okay. double bass is his main thing, but he can do anything. Like he no plays way. saxophone and piano and viola da gamba and early, <laughs> nice. early music thing. So he was big, you know, inspiration for me on that. But when you play music with other people, you connect with them and you listen to them in ways that aren't just what is the subject of the conversation, but much more, what does it really mean to connect with somebody and do something and make something together? Hmm. And it really grounds you and it's just so fun. And if you can get over like, oh, I don't know, my music is bad. If you can get over being a critic about what's the product and how that stacks you know, up to other things or compares to other things, yeah, it's just so good for you. Like I love doing that and yeah. I'm way more sane than I would be otherwise. Very cool. Well, I mean, music goes back from the beginning of time and, you know, whether it's chants or yeah. groups getting together and being in sync and dancing. And, you know, it's interesting because not a lot of, as you get older, you know, or we, as we get older in society, we tend to, you know, move away from a lot of the things that otherwise stimulated us and gave us energy and allowed us to connect with other people because we get so bogged down with the, you know, the daily go to work, go home, clean, you know, put your kids to bed and, you know, wash, rinse and repeat. So, but to, to be able to have something like that, whether it's music or anything to connect with other people, I mean, that's what sort of helps you know, keep everything clicking along until we're just, we don't become robots. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, for sure. No, I like that answer. So anyways, a few more things before we log off here, I'd like to take a moment to tell everyone about some upcoming events. Hey everyone, Alex here with the events on deck for November. First of all, we had our best turnout ever for our latest happy hour in Houston with our panel discussion. So thanks to everyone who attended and we hope to keep offering you guys value in the future. Be sure to listen here for any future happy hours. The events on deck for November include OGGN's second Denver happy hour on November 6th from 4 to 6 p.m. The cost of attendance is $20, a portion of which goes to local charities Safe House Denver and Oilfield Helping Hands. On November 12th at Minute Maid Stadium, IBM's Oilfield of Dreams, Data, Digitization, and Disruption. This event is free for all OGGN subscribers. OGGN's Mark LaCour will be doing a live podcast with ExxonMobil and his 2020 oil and gas predictions. On November 12th through 14th is Procurement Week in Sydney, Australia. Our travel partner, BCD Travel, will be sponsoring day two of Procurement Week in Sydney. Day two has content focused on the construction, mining, and energy sectors as well as an indirect procurement leaders forum, which encompasses travel. Industry leaders will be discussing value-driven procurement approaches, evolving technologies, and the changing landscape. And drinks are on BCD at the end of the day. The Houston chapter API Energy Petroleum Club will be meeting on November 12th in Houston. Speaker Shane McElroy will be talking about the sustainability of electric fracturing. We have another free event on deck this month for our subscribers. The Top Coder Innovation Summit will be taking place on November 14th in Houston, Texas. This event is the premier innovation event for industry leaders. You'll have the opportunity to attend panels on innovation and emerging technologies and meet with the YPRO and Top Coder executive teams. Lastly, the Algeria Oil and Gas Summit is happening on November 19th through 21st this year. Alnaft will be sharing onshore and offshore updates for Africa's leading gas producer and opportunities for independent oil and gas companies. And don't forget, if you guys would like to receive these events each month via email, click Get Mark's monthly events email link 
in the show notes of any OGGN podcast. Hope you guys have a great month. Awesome. Thank you. And if anyone out there in the Houston area is interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. Also, if you're looking to get in shape for, you know, whether you got a vacation coming up this winter or, you know, simply just looking to make a little bit of a lifestyle change, visit KTX Fit in Katy, Texas and get a free trial by telling one of the coaches that I sent you. Thank you for listening to Oil & Gas Onshore. If you're looking for more info, visit oilandgasonshore.com. And Alec, it's been an absolute pleasure meeting you and getting to talk. This has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. What's the best way that people can reach out to you, whether it's you know LinkedIn or website? What would you recommend? Yeah, if you search for Delphin SIA, that's the name of our tool together, Delphin SIA on mm-hmm. LinkedIn. I think you'll find us there. Okay. You can email me at aw at Delphin, D-E-L-F-I-N-C-A-S-I-A dot com. Perfect. But you can also just go to our website, which is also delphincia.com. Cool. Well, I'll put all those links in the show notes. That way it's easy for everyone to access. And that's a wrap, everybody. And always remember, when the density is up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil & Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. 